0: hello and welcome to steel getting better episode number five before we get into the topic this time around i want to take just a little bit of time to thank all of our listeners that have joined us up until now we have gotten some phenomenal response and i'm just overwhelmed with it in fact i'm so overwhelmed with it that at times it literally brought me to tears so um Thanks to everybody that has listened, thanks to everybody that has responded, thanks to everybody that has passed it on. Couldn't begin to tell you how much it means to me. It means a lot to our, uh, our uh, producer, well, our, our co-producer, Eric Olson, and, uh, you know, it's just been a phenomenal thing, and so, so I want to start out today by just telling you how much we really, really do appreciate it so, so very much. Now then, on to what we're going to talk about this time. Uh, On our website, I just talked about our co-producer, Eric Olson. He's the guy that uh, is responsible for things on our website at uh, www.steelgettingbetter.com. He's the reason that things on there look so nice. And uh, we have a, a page on our website here called Resources. And if you go to our website and click on that page, I have a little list here that Eric helped me compile. Uh, that says suggested reading, and it says practical self-improvement, and then there's a list of stuff, and then down later on, there's another little list about music appreciation and instruction, and then there's another list down beyond that about uh, sexuality and relationships. So uh, I thought that maybe today, maybe what I'd do is I'd take just a little bit of time to talk about a few of these books and why they made an impact on me and why I thought they made a legitimate difference in, you know, my day-to-day existence and why I think maybe they might be helpful to you or someone you know also. So um, I'm just going to kind of give a little brief overview of some of this stuff. And I'd like to point out that, Uh, I say I read all of this. In many cases, I read the book. Sometimes I listened to the audio book because I'm a big fan of audio books also, and I do a lot of driving. So I listen to a lot of audio books and podcasts and things of that nature. So sometimes if I reference something, I actually read the book. Sometimes I listened to the audio version. Sometimes I read the book and then went and bought the audio version or vice versa. Now, I've talked in the past uh, about autistic recall and I have good recall for this sort of thing but i can't always remember things super specifically so i'm pretty good at remembering generalized concepts and ideas that i got from these things so at times that i may just sort of talk in vagaries about like some just some concepts i got from some of these things but again if if you find any of this interesting at all i encourage you to get it for yourself and check it out so I'm going to start out with a book that I actually mentioned in episode number two. It made a huge impact on me. It's called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff, and it's by Richard Carlson, Ph.D. And as I said in episode number two, a friend of mine in a band actually suggested that I read this, and it helped me in a lot of ways. But I like the book, not only because of the very practical advice that it gives, I really like the way this book is formatted and laid out. So the way this book is laid out is there's at the heading of each page, there will be some simplistic little topic, two or three or words or sentence, maybe a couple sentences, and then below that, a little short essay about a page, maybe a page and a half, Long that covers whatever that little heading topic is. And because it's laid out in this fashion where nothing is more than about a page or two to cover any given topic, this is a great little bathroom book. You can keep it around in places where you can just grab it, pick it up, open it up, and grab some little chunk of insight. Now, I call this little section practical self-improvement, and if it didn't work, I would not be suggesting it to you folks. And so, when I actually applied them, I found virtually every one of the little suggestions offered in this book to actually be everything the author said they would be. Now, obviously this is predicated on the individual undertaking these actions, and I want to point out that that's the case with all of this kind of stuff. Great suggestions are wonderful, but they only work if you actually follow them. Uh, I heard a guy recently say somewhere i could starve to death in a kitchen full of cookbooks so you know these books have practical suggestions but the practical suggestions only work if you know if i do them so so anyway this book had some great stuff in it 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 a few simple little suggestions that made a big difference in my life i've always been super hyper And one of the suggestions in this book was to allow myself to be bored. And that was a foreign concept. I thought I had to have something to do all the time. And the notion that I could just sit around and be bored and that that in and of itself would be productive was an extremely foreign idea. But it turns out that it did, in fact, make a huge difference Another concept that I got from this book that made an enormous difference when I do it and I still to this day don't do it enough was the suggestion that I should develop patience practice periods. I've always had a problem with patience. Again, I'm hyper. I'm antsy. I want stuff done right away. Don't like waiting around for things. And yet we all know that sometimes you have to wait. Sometimes circumstances simply make it where waiting is the only thing you can do. And his suggestion to carve out deliberate periods of my day to exercise the, um, what he called, I forget exactly how he worded it, but but he he pointed out that patience is something that is like a muscle that must be exercised, and I never knew that. I just, I just assumed that some people were born with all this great patience, and so um, that's just a few of the suggestions that I got from that book that made a big, big difference. And. After I read the book, this is one of those books that I bought the audio version of because this was back in the days of all cars having a CD player and I bought the CD version of it and I just left it running in my car for a while. It was a two CD volume and I would switch them out and just I just I listened to it till I had it almost completely memorized. Now that's been a while so I don't remember as much of it as I should, one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode was to remind myself that I need to go back and review some of this stuff myself. All right. The next little book that I have on our list here is called Be Different, and it's by a guy named John Elder Robison. And John Elder and I have a lot of stuff in common. I found this guy's story to be absolutely fascinating because it mirrors my own in a lot of ways. Uh, John Elder, if I recall, I hadn't, I hadn't. This is one of the ones that I listened to on audiobook, and it was read by the author. Anytime I can find a, a, a audiobook that's read by the author, I like that. So I got to hear this guy tell his own story, and what a fascinating story it is. So. The first thing that I found intriguing about John Elder was, much like myself, he did not discover anything at all about this thing we call the autism spectrum until he was about 40 years old or somewhere around about in there. So that's very close to the same time in life that I found out that I was autistic. And it also turns out that much of his early life, as far as his social interactions and things of that nature and just his overall outlook on the world and the way he talked about things mirrored my own very, very closely. The things he had gotten interested in and ended up making a career out of also mirrored mine very closely because he ended up largely making his career in the music business, although not as a musician. John Elder got started in the music business because he was interested in electronics. And as a teenager, he went to a dance where he felt very out of place, just as I would have if I'd ever made it to any such thing. And he didn't really have anything in common with most of the other kids there, but he was fascinated by the rock band that was playing at the dance, and so he wandered around behind the stage so he could get a better look at the musicians. And he was watching the bass player, and he looked up in the back of the bass player's amplifier. And this was back in the days when all amplifiers had vacuum tubes that glowed. And he said he looked in the back of the amp, and he saw the vacuum tubes glowing, and he could literally see the current passing through them. And he instantly understood everything about the way tube amplifiers work. So he went up to these people in these bands and told them that if they ever needed their amps fixed, they should bring them to him. Well, he went on to have an enormous career in the world of musical instrument electronics. He designed stuff for bands like Kiss and a lot of other huge rock bands in the, in the seventies. And so this guy had a fascinating story, um, the way he presented himself reminded me a lot of me and other people that I would say occupy a space on the spectrum relatively similar to ours. Uh, you know, I we talked to Jake Penrod in the in the previous episode. I'd say that you know, listening to somebody like John Elder or me or Jake talk, we all sort of have similar patterns and ways of talking. So this guy's a great success story of somebody that found out about the autism spectrum uh, fairly late in life, and they had already found out ways to be successful in life beforehand, and just a fascinating guy and a fascinating story. So uh, he's got some other books out as well, I believe, and I have not read uh, any of the other ones, but uh, you guys look up John Elder Robison if you're at all interested in what it's like to be a high-functioning adult on the autism spectrum, especially if you're a middle-aged man, right? All right, so the next book I have on the list here is called Why Smart People Hurt by a guy named Eric Mazel. and I found this book in the library one day, and as it happened, uh, I was just in a fairly low mood. I was I was in a not so great uh, mental state for whatever reason at that particular time. It's been a while back. I don't even remember why I was in a low mood, but I was in one of those mindsets where I get from time to time where I was like, "Okay, this is frustrating because I know I'm bright, and you know why am I having a difficult time with?" fill in the blank whatever right and so i was walking around the library and i looked up and i saw this book that's called why smart people hurt and i was kind of asking myself that very question at the time you know i'm like hey i think i'm a pretty smart bright guy you know wh- why am i why do i consistently find myself uh, you know where i feel like i'm on the short end of the stick of certain things right so I grabbed this book and I brought it home and I started reading it and very shortly into this book, maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe a, a, a couple of paragraphs into this book, the, this guy made a statement that kind of blew my mind, first of all, and also really explained a lot to me and sort of kind of gave me some closure on something. And his statement was, and I quote, smart is disparaged. He went on to explain that throughout the history of mankind, smart people, bright people, intelligent people, whatever you want to call them, have been targets. He gave some great examples like World War II, He pointed out the fact that when the Germans decided to declare war on everybody, their first targets were the brightest people they could find. All the people that exited Germany that ultimately sort of helped the rest of us win the war were the scientists that were being persecuted because they were smart. He pointed out that this was a recurring theme through history and that it happened on all levels of society, be it at the global conflict level or be it at the schoolyard level, which I had personally experienced myself. Didn't take me long to figure out that this guy had hit upon something that was absolutely true. If you are of relatively high intelligence and people find out about it, they will be resentful of it and they have a lot of reasons to do so. But he pointed out that historically speaking, the biggest reason that this is true is that they are simply afraid of you. They understand that if people are intelligent, that they automatically have a leg up on people who are of average intelligence, and that they might use their intelligence in some fashion to gain an advantage should they choose to. And, of course, history is full of examples of intelligent people doing exactly that, sometimes in very, very bad ways. We call those folks evil geniuses. And so, to a very large degree, the average intelligent people have a real reason to be afraid of and therefore persecute those of above average intelligence. He explained that this constant persecution ultimately leads to a lot of hurt for the smart people. He also explained that people of lesser intelligence ignore the smart people for one reason and one reason only, and that is they simply do not know how to talk to them. And because they don't know how to talk to them, they shut them down, and that is also hurtful to the smart people. So this book was full of insights that sort of softened my views a little bit about why I sometimes felt like a target and why to a large degree I was a target, but it's okay. I'm not alone. It's the same way for anybody that exhibits what we would consider to be smart. Now, That brings me to something that I have as a personal belief, and that is that there's a big difference between smart and bright. I think this guy was talking more about bright than smart, even though his book was titled Why Smart People Hurt, because in my view, smart is more about the actions that a person takes, and bright is more about what they're, you know, Processing power might be what their IQ score might be, you know. So, I've known a lot of people in life, and at times myself included, who were very bright that did not always act particularly smart. So, you know, I think this guy is really talking about people that are very bright it, that, you know, oftentimes wonder why they feel like they just get beat down time and time again. And it's largely because it turns out, just like this guy says. Smart is disparaged. All right. Next, I'm going to move on to some stuff by a really interesting lady named Dr. Temple Grandin. Temple Grandin is generally considered one of the world's leading authorities on autism. She's also by far the most famous autistic person in the world in terms of being famous because of being autistic. Um, she's written several books and I've read some of them. Uh, HBO actually made a movie about her and I heard her herself say that she was a consultant on the movie and that the movie was a really accurate representation of her life. So if you're interested in a crash course in Temple Grandin, Uh, the HBO film that's just called Temple Grandin is a good place to start. Um, Things that make her extremely unique and interesting is that uh, she was really kind of one of the first people to emerge in the autism community uh, as a high-functioning adult that was opinionated enough to speak out against the way she thought some things were being handled in the world of autism. And she's extremely down to earth. She's, um, you know, she's, she's autistic people in general tend to cut to the chase and eliminate any sort of unnecessary language and, Temple is extremely good at that. And so a um, couple of books that I've got here that, that, that I did read, uh, one is called Thinking in Pictures. Now, she explains that her particular flavor of autism means that she does exactly that. She thinks in pictures. She kind of likens this to... Uh, Having a, a, a whole bunch of um, photographs in your hand and just flipping through to scan as they pass by really fast, uh, one at a time, and they all have some sort of connection to each other. So that's um, a little bit different than, than than the way I view things. and I think it's certainly the way, you know, different than the way a lot of people on the spectrum thing view things. But I also believe that there are a whole lot of people that that experience the world in a fashion much like that, and so uh, her writing style is really good. You know, um, there's another book on here called "Animals in Translation," and this was fascinating because one of the things that she's also famous for is um, is, is oddly enough ranching. So, uh, you know, in addition to being one of the foremost authorities in the world on autism, uh, you know, she's also an authority on animal management, like in, in the world of large-scale farming. And uh, the way that that came about is because she's like a lot of people on the spectrum. She really likes animals, and she developed a very deep understanding of the way animals perceive the world. And she used that understanding to develop some tactics to actually make the animal production process much better for the animals and the people that have to deal with the animals. And um, that was some pretty innovative thinking that she, you know, so so her book "Animals in Translation" is fascinating because it it literally gives a glimpse of how she thinks animals think and that is some pretty fascinating stuff and like you know that's like i i really got some tremendous insight out of that and it made me even just like interact with dogs and cats and things differently like like just anytime i get around um a dog that that I haven't met before or a dog that I can tell, uh, hasn't received any training, just like just some of the things I learned out of that book, just, just like sometimes just getting down on the dog's level and getting it eye level with them changes the whole interaction. And that was like just a notion that I'd got out of that book that I would have never thought of before. So, um, I recommend really anything by temples, uh, you know, she's, um, her story in and of itself is pretty astounding. So, um, you know, uh, her and again, John Elder Robinson are like the sort of the two, you know, they're icons of, of what it's like to be high functioning adults. So now then I want to talk about a book that, um, <laughs> again, I got this on audio and, um, I got this because I was about to go on a long drive. I I had to go uh, from Jackson, Mississippi, back to uh, Augusta, Georgia. And so I went to the library, and I found an audio book by a guy named Steve Chandler called A Hundred Ways to Motivate Yourself. And when I got this, I had been sort of feeling like I had been non-productive and, oh, I, you know, I'd been feeling like I had been sluggish and that, you know, that somehow I, I needed a spark and I needed to, um, you know, a new project or a new undertaking or something. So I get this hundred ways to motivate yourself audio book and I start out on my long drive and I put it in the CD player and, And this, again, this was read by the author, and he comes on, and in this very monotone voice, he says, I hope what I'm about to tell you doesn't offend you, but you have no personality. And I was sort of... I don't know if I was offended, but I was sort of surprised that that's the way this would start out. I was like, wow, okay. No personality, huh? That's a pretty broad categorical statement to make to just whoever picks up your book. But he went on to say that the notion that any of us have a fixed way of being that can't be altered is a complete myth. And I was like, oh, okay. I see maybe where he's going with this. And he went on to roughly explain some things like, hey, if you think about this, we know of many, many examples of people who used to be a certain way. Something happened in their lives. Maybe they used to be extremely overweight and they decided to diet and now they're at a healthy weight. He said, we hear these sorts of stories all the time. He said, we know for a fact, if we think about it long enough, that people are pliable. And so that got my attention enough to listen to his Hundred suggestions of ways to get motivated, and obviously I don't remember all of them now, can't remember all of them now, but this was also laid out in a similar format as the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff book, where it was just a little bit of a topic and then a little bit of an essay behind it, and it turned out that, again, every one of his suggestions— if I choose to follow them, if I choose to take the action and do what he says, every single one of them helped me. Um, some of them were like pretty blunt and you know not very kind to my ears, but he'd already said I hadn't didn't have any personality, so I guess there wasn't too much reason to be offended. He said some interesting things like kill your television he said when you're watching tv you're watching people on the other side of a screen do what they want to do while you sit there passively doing nothing I was like wow okay well i've had a couple of televisions since then but i don't know that i've really i i've got a television now but it's packed away and it's not operational and I just, you know, I don't miss it one bit because I now understand that anytime I think about the idea of watching TV, that's an opportunity to go do something else. One of his other suggestions was to make my own news instead of watching or listening to the news. Well, I still fall victim of listening to the news occasionally but I don't do it nearly as much as I used to, and I find that my psyche is much better as a result of not constantly exposing myself to the inevitable negativity that comes along with the news. The next book on the list is called Verbal Judo by George Thompson. This is another guy that had an absolutely fascinating backstory. He had started out as a classical philosophy teacher at a university, and he had pretty high credentials in terms of academia. And so apparently he went for several years as, you know, I, I don't remember the, the precise details. It's been a while since I read this one. But at any rate, you know, this guy was a pretty high up in the world of academics as a professor, And at some point in time, he got interested in martial arts. And so he was an adventurous sort of guy. So he took up not one, but two different martial arts. He took up judo and karate. Now, remember the name of this book is Verbal Judo. So the fact that he took up two different martial arts and ultimately named his book after one of them is going to factor in if you uh, get into this guy's book. But his backstory was pretty interesting because first he starts out as a philosophy professor, then he gets into martial arts. He, like, uh, I'm pretty sure he earned a black belt, maybe even in both of those disciplines. I don't remember. And then he gets bored and decided that he's going to quit his career in academia run off and join the police academy and become a police officer. And if I recall, he was maybe in like his early 30s when he decided that he was going to quit being a, a college professor and become a police officer. Well, he's starting out at ground zero, so when he gets out of the police academy, what happens with fresh police officers? Well, they get sent out to be beat cops walking the beat with seasoned, you know, old-timer cops that have been doing this for a long time, right? So, this guy's extremely intelligent. He knows everything there is to know about classical philosophy, and he also knows everything there is to know, or a lot there is to know, about two different disciplines of martial arts— And he says that when he gets out in the world as a police officer, he immediately finds that he knows absolutely nothing about human communication. (laughs) And he said that, you know, what he thought he knew about philosophy was of no use to him whatsoever out there in the real world trying to deal with people who were probably distressed if they needed to call the police. And all these reasons and things why the ideas that he thought kind of governed the way people operated all went out the window to a large degree out there in the real world. And how the only way he was going to figure out tactics that would actually get him through this was by paying attention to these guys who had been doing it for a long time that seemed to have this magical ability to smooth over situations. He said that he noticed that when he arrived on a scene, the situation tended to escalate, and when some of these other old guys arrived on the scene, the scene tended to de-escalate. So he said he started trying to find out what it was that made these guys different and why they could defuse things when he couldn't. <laughs> and this was full of some really good insights. And one of my favorite ones was a little determination that this guy ultimately made as a police officer. He said that ultimately he figured out that there's basically three kinds of people in the world. He said there's nice people, and there's difficult people, and there's wimps. He went on to explain that it wasn't too difficult to figure out who was who, and he used a police example. He said, for example, if he pulled somebody over and they were nice, he asked them for their driver's license, They just smiled and handed it to him. They were nice. No difficulty of any sort. However, he said if he pulled over a difficult person and he admitted to being one himself, oh, by the way, I'm one also, don't mind admitting that. And his explanation of difficult people is why I don't mind admitting it. He said if he pulled over a difficult person and walked up and said, can I see your license, he said the difficult person's response is going to be one thing. Why? Why do you want to see my license? What did I do? Which is actually a fair question, right? The difficult person simply wants an explanation. They're not trying to cause a problem. They're not malicious in any way. They just want to know why they're being instructed to do a thing. If they see no logical reason, they want a valid explanation. And then he went on to explain that after that comes the wimps. And he said that it had been his observation that really, when you get right down to it, these are the people that cause most of the difficulty. He explained that these are the sort of people who won't give you a straight answer about anything, and they're the kind of people that will go behind your back to manipulate a situation to their advantage while clearly making things worse for someone else. He explained that these wimp people have no conviction, and therefore they got nothing to stand up for, and when challenged, They simply fold or fade or transmute to whatever thing suits them best next while leaving a wake of wreckage in their past. Now, this was an interesting notion to me, and after this was presented to me, I've paid pretty close attention, and I have to say, I must agree that his theory that there's basically three kinds of people is fairly accurate. Again, this guy had a real interesting story. I just thought it was a cool book. All right, the next book on our list is called The Secret Life of Introverts, and it's by Precious Presley. All right, right, I'll maybe I got that out without too much stammer. All right, this book was interesting because I've always known that I was introverted. I've always known that I wasn't shy. I mean, after all, I'm in the music business. I perform in front of people all the time. I got no problem speaking in public. I got no problem talking to the public while making a podcast. I must not be shy, but I've always known that I've been self-conscious about being in crowds and that I didn't like a lot of people for an extended period of time. Well, this book introduced me to some real interesting notions. One of the interesting notions that it in- talked about was what she called the introvert hangover. That's the experience of, well, yeah, I can go be around a large group of people for a while, and everything's good, but once I'm away from that for a little while, I need some recharge time, the same as if I had had too much to drink and woke up with a hangover and needed to recover from that. So she also had some really interesting concepts about how introverts could learn how to interact a little bit differently and a little bit better. Uh, again, A suggestion only works if you try it, and she offered a couple of suggestions that I did try, at least for a while. One of her suggestions was to make sure that I went to a social gathering of some sort at least once a week, and it was best if it was some place or event or group of people that I was not previously familiar with. Uh, luckily, in the modern world, that's pretty easy to do. We got all these different things like meetup apps and you know Facebook groups and all that sort of thing. So if you decide to follow that little piece of advice and just go, okay, I'm gonna take myself out to some sort of gathering once a week, simply because I know it's um, something I should do to work on my introvert i mean not that we're trying to eliminate being introverts but you know if you know what i mean just just as an exercise to improve contact skills and all that uh there's all kinds of great ways to do that so anyway uh that covers a few of these books that we have on this list and uh we might come back and do another episode about this sort of thing again i don't know we'll see how things go but uh Don't know what's going to happen for the next episode, but uh, you guys chew on this for a while and we'll see y'all again next time. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time on Steel Getting Better. Steel Getting Better is a production of Steel Labs Entertainment and James Shelton, who is solely responsible for its content. The show is produced in the live music capital of the world, Austin, Texas, USA. Our assistant producer is Eric Olson. Follow James Shelton on Instagram at James Shelton Steel Player and on Twitter at Steel Around. James' instructional material for the pedal steel guitar is available on YouTube at Stage Volume Entertainment. Also look for the Steel Labs group on Facebook. Original theme music, Slowly I'm Rising, was written and recorded by James Shelton and Timmy the Judge Campbell. We welcome your comments and feedback. Email us at steelgettingbetter at gmail.com. Links and other resources are available on our website, www.steelgettingbetter. Listen wherever you get your podcast. This is James Shelton, wishing you well. Until next time on Steel Getting Better.